Thank you for setting that reading. Welcome once again to St. John's this morning. It's lovely to see you here. I wonder whether you have ever been in a place that you shouldn't have been. I wonder whether you have ever managed to get into a sort of, uh, you know, one of those prohibited access areas and you've felt a little guilty about it, but you've been there nonetheless. I wonder if you have been in an environment or a group or an occasion where you knew you were a bit of a, 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 an imposter, uninvited guest at a wedding reception or something, and you slightly feel uh, out of place, although something you have transgressed some boundary. Um, I was thinking about this question myself, and I was recalling a few uh, incidents in my own life. I remember when I was about uh, 18 years old, uh, in my hometown of Bristol, there was a large BBC production called the BBC Festival of the Sea, and the whole of the harbour docks area had been closed off, uh, no public access until the actual event, because they were setting up the stage and the sound systems and the cameras and all of those sorts of things. And so it was a kind of prohibited access. You had to have a permit uh, to get in. Now, a friend of mine named Ben and myself um, were sort of driving around relaxing, chilling out. We were quite curious about this BBC Festival of the Sea. We were a little bit techy and geeky. We um, had set up a little recording studio uh, in a disused room in a church hall, and we wanted to go and see what kind of kit the BBC were using for this Festival of the Sea. We thought, how on earth will we get in there? And uh, we, we drove down to the harbour in the docks area in his battered Austin Metro parked, and then thought, how on earth could we get into this prohibited access area? We spotted in the backseat of the car some ADAT recording tapes, which are prehistoric now, but back then were all the rage. These were digital recording tapes, and we'd been using them on some recording session we had done, and we thought, let's grab these, and let's see if we can blag our way in. So we walked merrily up to the gates where the security guards with our high-vis vests were. I wish we'd had a high-vis vest, because, of course, you can go anywhere if you've got a high-vis vest now, can't you? But we didn't. We had ADAT recording tapes, and so we kind of boldly walked up to the high-vis uh, security guard, who looked a bit menacing, at the gates in his high-vis vest, with his walkie-talkie, with his little earpiece in. And we held up these tapes and said, yeah, ADAT recording tapes for the BBC. He said, he said excuse me? Yeah, we're just delivering ADAT recording tapes for the BBC. Oh, all right, he said, and stepped aside and ushered us in. <laughs> We spent the next uh, hour just wandering around this kind of prohibited area, enjoying ourselves, but feeling it like transgressors because we'd managed to get into an uh, out-of-bounds area. In slightly more um, sort of uh, profound ways, I have felt that sense of being out of place, being somewhere I shouldn't have been. When I was an undergraduate student, uh, there were postgraduate seminars run, and they were for postgraduates, not undergraduates, and I was an undergraduate. Uh, but I went anyway, because I wanted to learn. I wanted to lap up what was going on. I had a thirst for understanding and knowledge and, and the kind of research that was going on. And I would sort of sit around this table full of PhD students and postdocs and academics, feeling a little bit out of place, but nonetheless, you know, transgressor again, but nonetheless enjoying it. When I was 17 years old, I had friends of mine who were part of the student group in the church which I attended, and they were going on a student house party, and I managed to persuade somebody to let me go as well, even though I wasn't part of the student group, because I wanted to be where the action was happening, and I wanted to ignore the conventions and be somewhere that perhaps I shouldn't have been. So I wonder where you have been, where you shouldn't have been, and how you felt. Mary, in the reading that we just heard, Mary was somewhere she shouldn't have been. She was in the front room 
reserved for men, reserved for the rabbi, reserved for the teachers. She was sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha was irritated. The room with Jesus was the room for men. It was specifically for those who wanted to learn from a rabbi, and the point of learning from a rabbi was so that you in turn could go on and teach. To sit at the feet, which uh, is written down there, verse 39, Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. To sit at the feet was an indication of humility before a teacher. It meant you wanted to learn. You wanted to learn so that you could go on and in due course teach. So St. Paul spoke of sitting at the feet of the great rabbi Gamaliel, famous rabbi. It meant it was a way of credentialing yourself. I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Even today, academics talk about their supervisors and mentors as a kind of credentialing for who they are. And in popular culture, the same, actually. Brendan Rogers, who was the Liverpool football manager for a while last year, uh, sat at the feet of Jose Mourinho. He was an assistant coach at Chelsea. So you see more and more you find that people want to kind of credential themselves by where they have been, where they have learned. And the point about learning and being serving and training under a great and acknowledged great person is so that you in turn can go on and teach, lead, coach, whatever it may be. Now, Martha's irritation at her sister was not because she wasn't spiritual. There's sometimes a kind of, you know, a, a poor interpretation going on here, which is like, Mary's so spiritual, she sits at the feet of Jesus, she's just in the presence of Jesus, she's laughing up, and Martha's like the unspiritual one because she's doing the housework and preparing the meal. That's not true. Remember in John 11, Martha uh, ran out to meet Jesus when her brother Lazarus had died and said, you can heal him. You are the Messiah. She confessed him as much. She has great insight. She recognizes Jesus for who he is. Martha's not irritated because she's not spiritual, but she is concerned that the social order is being contravened. Mary is somewhere she shouldn't be, just like me and my friend with our ADAT recording tapes were somewhere we shouldn't have been. But this is rather more serious because the social order is being contravened, and this could bring her family, and indeed Jesus himself, into disrepute. And precisely because of her concern for Jesus' reputation, she doesn't want him being brought into disrepute. She doesn't want him tarnished by having a woman sat in the room. Because, of course, and it's very hard for us to get our heads around it because it's alien to our culture, but women were not allowed to go and learn from rabbis. They just weren't. Only boys, men could do that. So Martha is probably expressing a protective instinct towards Jesus, not wanting him to be at the center of a scandal through having broken social rules. Remember that Jesus was accused by his opponents of fraternizing with tax collectors and sinners, and they could very well add to that the accusation that he accepts the company of women in inappropriate places. What might be going on between Jesus and Mary? You know, there's a kind of deep, deep social anxiety about what is happening. But Jesus himself is unconcerned. How does he respond? He says Mary has chosen what is better. Because Mary has seen, and Jesus has, if you like, uh, validated and affirmed that the kingdom of God is not beholden to social convention. In God's kingdom, in God's economy, a woman can sit at the feet of a man and learn to become a teacher, and then in turn become a teacher and a leader of God's people. 
the old social orders are turned on their head. Sometimes our priorities are misplaced and misdirected. Martha's priorities were for good social standing and good reputation. And it wasn't that she had a bad desire in that. It was just that they were misplaced. Sometimes we need to recognize that what's important now may not be the same as what we had thought was important in the past. So in our first reading today, we had the, the, the account of Amos's vision of a basket of ripe fruit. And ripe fruit that is not eaten immediately only has one future in store for it. It's going to rot. It's going to decay. I think the emphasis of the vision is on the imminent rotting of Israel. It's as though God is giving this vision and saying, you know, the time is up for Israel. There's only one way that this can go, and it's bad. Because its priorities are all wrong. If you want to turn with me to that passage, it's on page 992, if I remember correctly. Look at verse 3. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Your worship songs are going to become wailing because they've become a misplaced priority. Look at verse 10. I'll turn your religious feasts into mourning and your singing into weeping. Your celebrations will become mourning because they've become a misplaced priority. You've been beholden to a set of conventions that are not what the Lord has for you. And then look at verses 11 and 12. Your feasting will become a famine. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And what's the consequence going to be? Well, just like being hungry and thirsty, we will stagger. We will stagger from sea to sea, wandering from north to east, desperate for the word of the Lord, hungry for God's word, a hunger for guidance. Why? Why are these things going to happen? Because their priorities are wrong. They are, they, are, they are preserving the social conventions of the world. They're keeping the new moon festivals and the Sabbath. Verse 5, it's clear that the people of Israel are observing the new moon feasts. They are observing the Sabbath. But... They've not got it right. They've not understood what the feast or what the Sabbath is for. They've got it wrong because they want to get on with exploitative commerce. They want the feast and the Sabbath to be over. What were they doing? Well, their rulers were trampling the needy and doing away with the poor. In other words, they were actively making life harder for the poor, marginalizing them from life. Uh, second, they resented the patterns of religious life that characterized Jewish worship because, you see, they weren't allowed to work and trade on the Sabbath or during the New Moon Festival. The New Moon Festival marked the start of each month, and the Jews were expected to offer sacrifices to go to Jerusalem, to abstain from business. And this was all to be uh, an indicator, a marker, an acknowledgement of God's providence and God's timing and God's order. But they wanted to get it over and done with and get back to normal. The wealthy and the powerful were falsifying measures when they traded to their advantages. The scales were dishonest. It's the equivalent of fiddling the books. You know, flipping a house or in an expenses scandal or doing something dodgy on your tax return. It might be the kind of Cayman Island 
offshore stuff. It's, it's something that you are doing to fiddle it, to make it work in your favor and your advantage. And they were buying the poor and the needy to act as slaves in their households, taking the most vulnerable and then trading them as slaves. And there were rules against this for the Jews. Every seven years, all Jewish slaves had to be released. We don't think this was actually ever really happening very much. Listen to how the message translation of the Bible deals with this passage. It says this, Listen to this, you who walk all over the week, you who treat poor people as less than nothing, who say, when's my next paycheck coming so I can go out and live it up? How long till the weekend when I can go out and have a good time? Who give little and take much and never do an honest day's work. You exploit the poor using them, and then when they're used up, you discard them. God swears against the arrogance of Jacob and keeping track of their every last sin. On judgment day, watch out. These are the words of God, my master. Maybe brings it closer to home with the language to think about the world in which we live. The Old Testament scholar John Barton said this, Amos was Israel's first theologian as far as we know because no one before him had subjected the religious beliefs and practices of the people in Israel to critical scrutiny. No one else had gone quite so deep and intense as Amos did into saying, hold on, are we living lives which match the worship that we're offering to God? Have we got joined up lives or is there a disconnect between what we do on the Sabbath and the New Moon Festival and what we're actually doing in everyday life? Israel was living in a time of apparent prosperity, but it was the prosperity of a few at the expense of the many. Sound familiar? So the question for us is, how much do our lives conform to the social conventions of our society? Are we swept along in the, the practices and the patterns of life that we see around us in the world? And how much are we turning the world upside down? That's the way the first Christians are described in Acts 17. People who are turning the world upside down. When Mary sits at Jesus' feet and Jesus commends her for choosing the better path, she's turning the world upside down. He's turning the world upside down. They're confirming that the social conventions and norms are things which might concern us, get us het up and anxious, might not be nearly so important as we thought, but that there might be something more urgent, more pressing, a new priority. And that new priority is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of justice, peace, and love. And it's never too late or too early to find a new place at the master's feet. Mary is welcomed, and so are we. We needn't worry about social convention or practice. All are welcomed into the presence of God. We simply come with repentance and with faith. And so, if you like, the message I want to leave us with today is that whatever you've heard about yourself or believed about yourself, maybe you've heard messages, you're not good enough, clever enough, you're not old enough, you're not young enough, that you're too rich, too poor, too black, too white, too female, too male, too tattooed, that your past is too murky and your future too uncertain. Whatever messages you've picked up, whether spoken or unspoken, be assured of this. The pecking order of the world is turned upside down in the kingdom of God. The first become last, the last first. Those who are willing to die to themselves find life, abundant 
life. Jesus welcomes us to his table, to his presence, into the front room, to sit at his feet, so that we might be filled up and sent out full of his abundance to share with the world. So come. Come. Come to the one who feeds you, who nourishes you, who takes everything that you are and says, with me, in me, you are forgiven and transformed and filled and set. Let's stand together and pray. All of this is a ministry of the Holy Spirit, the living presence of God, who is poured out into our hearts. And I think God has been very powerfully present with us this morning already. And I just want to invite you. Uh, Steve's going to lead us in a, in a song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And we're going to welcome the Spirit of God to be present with us. to encourage you to do as Mary does to boldly go into the front room to sit at the master's feet to be where Jesus is and in your mind's eye you might even imagine yourself sitting, kneeling waiting to be filled so that you in turn can go out and share the love of God with others